Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm just Bear, and joining me today is Jimmy. Hello again. And we are continuing our look at one Benjamin Franklin. Uh, last week, we talked about all his many inventions, that he actually did not invent electricity. He just found out that metal conducts it very well. Um, and then he went to Parliament and was like, hey, that Stamp Act thing you're planning is not a great idea. Please don't do that. And well, they did it anyway. Um, so by 1767, Franklin had taken up the pen to carefully and coolly explain why the Americans should not be taxed by English Parliament. In the article on the property of taxing America, Franklin took on the most common arguments by Parliament and would refute each of them. For instance, Parliament asserted that the colonies were settled at its expense. He reminded Parliament that all the colonies except for Georgia were founded with, without direct support from England because they were all proprietary colonies, basically meaning that private investors put up the money, set up the colonies themselves, just with the permission of England, not at the expense of England. Georgia's the one oddball because Georgia was a penal colony where they sent all the people that couldn't pay the taxes. Was this during their virtual representation claim? Kind of, yes. Also, for some reason, they decided to make Georgia into a silk colony. Silk. Silk. Huh. Guess what doesn't grow in Georgia? Silk. Silk. Yeah, that makes sense. It didn't go really well. Like, no, really like it, it was it was debauchery. Yeah. From my understanding, everybody was just rolling around on the streets drunk all the time. Sounds like Georgia. In Savannah. Sounds, yeah. Another argument from Parliament was that they had spent large sums of money protecting the colonists. <clears throat> Franklin rebutted, show me the receipts and then argued local militias armed themselves on their own dime. We kind of talked about this last week where um, settlements within the colonies formed their own militias, and the militias were responsible for their own ammunition, their own weapons, their own uniforms, all that stuff. If they got a little bit lucky, the colony would give them money, but that was very rare. Um, so once again, he's like, you guys paid for nothing. We've been, we've been uh, footing this dime forever. Then the argues, uh, British argued, the colonists were the chief beneficiaries of the French and Indian War. True, Franklin conceded, a lot of land in North America fell in the British hands, but this land was ceded not to the colonies, but to the crown, which is now granting it away in large tracts to British gentlemen. Many British officials also asserted that the colonies paid no taxes. What nonsense, Franklin exploded. They have their own civil and military establishments to support, and taxes are heavy. So French and Indian War ends, English colonies in what is now America expands. Historically, it went from Atlantic Ocean to Appalachia. Mm -hmm. Now it extends from Atlantic to Mississippi River and all that stuff between Appalachia, Mississippi River is unsettled. Proclamation 1763. Yes, Proclamation 1763, which is yeah. also going to anger the colonists because they were Because they fought for all that land and then... The they English can't use any of it. Yep, and the English government was just now is selling it to people within England. So Franklin's not very happy with that either. So after 1767, Franklin believed his arguments were falling on deaf ears. He would write, I do not see here a sufficient quantity of the wisdom that is necessary to produce such a result that I lament the lack of it. So now he's pretty much just calling Parliament dumb and saying, these people aren't smart enough to understand what's actually going on. And one of the big issues with Parliament is there's a huge disconnect between 
Parliament and the colonies. Because most of the members of Parliament haven't ever been to the colonies and they have no clue what's going on there. So you like continue. They've done stuff like that in the past, like with uh, Africa and India. Yes. And we'll continue to do that. Yeah. That's why we get such great borders around the world. Uh, he would continue to tell Parliament that if they wanted taxes to go back to how it, that they wanted taxes to go back to how it used to be done, saying that it had worked for many years without inciting rebellion or distrust. Um, so the way taxes used to be done is the king would go to the colonies and say, "Listen, I need taxes." The colonies would then have local governments debate the taxes. The local governments would him and haw over the taxes, but in the long run, they would still pay the taxes. They just liked the fact that they got to complain about it, and then they would end up paying it anyway. All right. Stamp, what, Act, Stamp Act Congress. Yes. And what he's very, what he's saying is the colonists, you kind of just now are just levying these taxes without allowing us to vent. So that's what's making everybody mad. Next, Parliament would pass the Quartering Act, which would require colonists to house British soldiers in their homes. This is further going to outrage Americans. Parliament argued that if soldiers had to be posted to enforce English taxes, that colonists should have to house them. Um, New York would become the lead state in opposing the Quartering Act. Parliament responded by taking away New York's ability for local government. Franklin would once again write, Obey implicitly laws made by Parliament of Great Britain to force money from you without your consent, or you shall enjoy no rights or privileges at all. Uh, Britain would then tighten its controls on the colonies. They began to appoint their own governors to enforce Parliament Acts. They would often leave, and these governors would often leave their families behind because their sole purpose was making money as fast as they could in the colonies and then return. All right, so what's going on is they're taxing and the governors are kind of skimming a little bit off the top for themselves and then giving the rest to England, all right? Britain at the same time was trying to triple the Amer uh, cripple American manufacturing. Uh, they wanted to force the colonists to send raw materials to England and then buy, force the colonists to buy the manufactured products at inflated prices because England was trying to make money off their colony. Well, manufacturing had begun in the American colonies, so the colonists started buying American-made goods. England didn't like that, so they were trying to force their hand on that. Franklin would say the final insult was that England, along with Scotland, were emptying their jails in order to send rogues and villains to the colonial settlements. Franklin responded by saying perhaps the colonists should return the favor by exporting rattlesnakes to their settlements. I don't know if rattlesnakes would survive the journey across the Atlantic. Yeah. So I take it Europe does not have rattlesnakes. I don't think so. Would most members of Parliament know what a rattlesnake is at this point? I'm guessing it sounds, no. Yeah, it doesn't sound that scary if no. you don't know what it is. <laughs> Next came the Declaratory Act uh, that reiterated to the colonists that Parliament had the right to tax them and tax them they did on the grounds that the colonies should have to cover the cost of all the stamps that were never used. So remember, the Stamp Act, you had to basically get a stamp on every piece of paper you use saying that you paid your tax. Well, they rescind the Stamp Act because Franklin does a great job of arguing saying, this is not making things good here. Please stop. So then they're like, oh, you now must pay tax for all the stamps we didn't use. So you have to cover the cost of that paper. The Thompson Acts would also tax lead, paint, glass, and tea. 
While in England, Franklin would get good and bad news. The good was that his daughter was married in Philadelphia, 1767. The bad was that his wife had suffered a stroke that she would never recover from. But this would not stop Franklin. He would continue to spar with Parliament. He would also take on the issue of slavery. Franklin would admit early on that he had prejudices against African-Americans. However, his attitude would eventually change and he would become a strong abolitionist. Uh, he would begin to question Britain's role in promoting the slave trade. He would write the hypocrisy of this country, which encourages such a detestable commerce. He would argue that British prides itself upon its love for liberty, but support and profit from the exploited labor of thousands of slaves. When he would return to Pennsylvania in 1775, he would join the abolitionist society that was formed by Quakers and would eventually become the president. Um, but he is still going to be taking on Parliament about the issue of taxation. Um, and in 1774, Parliament is going to fight back. The English government had finally had enough of his constant criticisms. They wanted to, him to experience humiliation, abuse, taunts, and ridicule. Oh, not taunts. Oh, yeah. Oh, anything but the taunts. Life was so different back in the 1700s. It's like, oh, you spoke ill of my name. We must duel. They call him a jester. <laughs> so he would be summoned to the Privy Council, which was the body of advisors that were closest to the king. They wanted him to answer specific charges that were pretty much close to treason. Franklin's enemies wanted to appear that he was the chief enemy to Britain. The man leading the charge was the Solicitor General. His name was Alexander Wedderburn. During the hearings, things would get worse when the news of the Tea Party had reached Boston. Um, so Tea Party, Sam Adams. 1773. 1773, a bunch of members of the Sons of Liberty, dress up as Native Americans, go on an English tea ship and throw it on Boston Harbor to protest taxes on tea. This was also after the Intolerable, intolerable Acts, which made them say, any tax we put on you, you have to obey, pretty much. That was Dectory Acts. Oh, okay. Intolerable Acts come after the Tea Party. Oh, yeah. That, that was that's a result response. of the Tea yeah. Party. Yep. But they lose like... The, the modern day equivalent of the money that's lost during the Tea Party is like quite substantial. And England's like, ugh. See what this Franklin guy is doing? Franklin, this is his doing. He, he was behind this. And Franklin's like, what are you talking about? I've been in England for the last two years. Um, so the prosecution would argue that Franklin was behind the Tea Party with the goals of becoming the governor of Massachusetts. This was because of his ongoing battle with the, the, the then governor, Thomas Hutchinson. Uh, Franklin had published some leaked letters from Hutchinson where he was asking the English government to get rid of local rule in the colonies altogether, and that's going to really turn colonists on Hutchinson. Wedderburn would then argue that with his um, that Franklin's goal was to become the tyrannical head of the great American Republic. If you know anything about Ben Franklin, he is very much so against tyranny. <laughs> He's actually very pro-liberty. He would close his arguments by saying, oh, this is one of the, this is that, uh, those bad words that are being geared towards him that they really wanted him experiencing. They're taunting him with oh. these words. This oh, is, boy. this is deep stuff here. Okay. Like, I don't know how Franklin went Scallywag. on. He would close his arguments by saying, I hope my lords, you will mark and brand this man for the honor of this country of Europe and mankind. He deserves no forgiveness. He has forfeited all the respect of societies and men. 
Oh, scathing words from Wedderburn. Franklin would respond with silence. From then on, he would refer to England as this old rotten state and its ministers as the very embodiments of extreme corruption. Four days after the trial, Franklin would write to Charles Thompson, those that berated me had the nerve to claim sovereignty over three million virtuous, sensible people of America, but in fact appeared to have scarce discretion enough to govern a herd of swine. The English had just managed to anger one of their biggest allies. Franklin is now fully on board with a clean break. So if you remember from last week, Franklin really, really wanted to have good relations between the colonies and England. He's like, it's in your best interest to be making money off the colonies. To do that, you want the colonies happy. The colonies are happy. That's in best, their best interest, too. There's no way why this should not work out. Well, now he's mad. Council would then fire Franklin from being the deputy postmaster general. Oh, now they're, now they're playing dirty. Uh, they would then turn to Parliament to deal with the aftermath of the Tea Party. They would pass what would be called the Intolerable Acts. Uh, Parliament thought they could contain the violence to just New England. They were wrong. The acts angered all of the colonists. In Philadelphia, effigies of Wedderburn and Hutchinson were prayed through the streets and burned. More importantly, First Continental Congress would meet in Philadelphia in the fall of 1774. Um, and this is a historical meeting because it's the first time that representatives from all 13 colonies will meet. And they decide... We need to boycott English goods. We need to start hurting the English economy. So hopefully they start listening. Um, in February 1775, Parliament would officially declare, though, that Massachusetts was in a state of rebellion. Franklin would be back on his way to Philadelphia. Okay, he is going to leave shortly after that on March 21st. Um, in July, on July 26, 1775, they, um, the Second Continental Congress established Franklin as the first U.S. Postmaster General. Good for him. He got his so, title back. He got the title back. <laughs> I bet he's on a stamp. Somewhere. Uh, so meanwhile, as Franklin is heading back to the United States, the world is going to completely change. That is because of the events of Lexington and Concord. On April 19th, 1775, British General Thomas Gage would give the order to 700 British soldiers to confiscate weapons and arms that he believed were being stockpiled in the town of Concord, Massachusetts, which is like about 20 miles outside of Boston. All right, he's fearing that these armed revolutionaries will be bad and that they are going to promote violence. The order was supposed to be conducted in secrecy, however, that was not well maintained. Boston's had been keeping an eye on British movements and would tip off British plans. That's when you get the famous ride of Paul Revere. Most people don't know there's two other people riding with them. They just don't make it all the way to Concord. That's mm -hmm. William Dawes and Samuel Prescott. Also, most people don't, don't realize that Paul Revere had actually gone to Concord about two or three days before yeah, and had wasn't. preemptively warned them that the British were coming. So there's no midnight ride. There is a midnight ride, but it's not, not, as, it's not as dramatized. Dra dramatic as it has seemed. And the reason why it gets dramatized is because Paul Revere was a printer. He's like, ooh. Famous. Money. I think he made spoons too. Ooh, a spoon maker. like a silversmith or something. So on the way to Concord, the King's Army would first reach the town of Lexington. There they would be confronted by between 60 to 70 militiamen. The militia had been ready all morning. They actually sent a scout out really early in the morning, and he rode like six miles down the road from Lexington, came back and was like, I don't see anybody. 
Well, the British were seven miles away, so he had just missed them. So the militiamen actually go to the local pub and start drinking and having breakfast, kind of just waiting for this thing to happen. It helps with confidence. It, it, liquid confidence, yes. But not not, not being, accuracy. Not accuracy. No. And those the weapons back then had hard Those cancel each that. other out, I guess. <laughs> so the advance guard, the British led by a man by the name of Pickering, would eventually show up in Lexington. Militiamen see them. They're actually warned. Militiamen stop eating breakfast and meet them. They're going to be joined by about 40 to 100 spectators that are just watching the stand down occur. Um, Militiamen would be led by Captain John Parker, a veteran of the French and Indian War. He was suffering from consumption. Oh, we can't have a podcast without consumption. If you don't know what consumption is, it's tuberculosis. And since that's a lung ailment, it's hard to hear him. Uh, most of the militiamen are related to one another. A quarter of the men that are there are actually related to Parker himself. I think there's like five surnames in total of all the militiamen that are at Lexington. Parker knew he was outmatched and wasn't ready to sacrifice his men, knowing that the weapons in Concord had already been hidden. He also knew that previously the British had gone on excursions to find weapons. When they don't find anything, they just go back to Boston. Parker would tell his men, stand your ground, don't fire less fired upon, but if they mean to have war, let it begin here. So the militia is pretty much, they just want to kind of intimidate the British. Our presence, this, here's our presence, let it be known. We don't have intentions to fight you. Just know that if you guys start getting a little aggressive here, we will fight you. Uh, the British would try to disperse the militia by marching at them. As the two sides faced off, a shot was fired. No one knows by whom. Both sides opened fire on each other. The British actually initially had their guns loaded with blanks, which kind of proves that they had no intents of fighting. They just wanted to disperse the militiamen. They still killed eight militiamen compared to one yeah. British guy. So died. then they have time to reload their weapons, and they fire another volley. They're going to kill eight militiamen. I think like five are from the same family. And then um, militiamen are going to disperse. And the, the English are completely just, they have no clue what just happened. But they think they're victorious in this weird skirmish that's that just taken place. And they don't think news is going to travel. So they just go on their way to Concord. However, word had quickly gotten to Concord that fighting had started in Lexington. Their militia had already begun to organize. Uh, they had set up on the outskirts of town um, on a hill about a mile outside of it. When the British got to Concord, they split up is not a smart move. Um, 500 troops under Colonel Smith begin searching around the village green. 200 British troops around Captain Parson are uh, supposed to go secure the North Bridge. Um, and then basically those 200 are going to split up and 100 are going to go search the home of James Barrett. Barrett was the commander of the Concord Militia. And then there's going to be a fourth group that's over by another bridge on the south end of town. Um, the British search for weapons, and it does not go well because Patriots had already hidden most of the weapons and munitions. The guns at Barrett's farm were actually buried in the ground to look like newly planted rows of corn. Because remember, it's April, so you're getting ready to plant your crops anyway. So they have those rows, and all the rifles are planted in there, and the British are just walking over them. Um, when soldiers went to the house of Dorothy Wood, she said they could search the house except for one room because there were ladies in that room. Actually had guns in it, but the British obliged. So you still get like, even though they had already just fought this little battle in Lexington, there's still like this, they're still cordial with the citizens and things like that. It's not like it's an act of war. And he's like, okay, 
there's ladies in there. We won't go in there. All right. That's a, it's always a mm -hmm. convincing argument. Muskets and ammunition that they did find, they would throw in a pond, but the Patriots just went in the pond and got it back a day later. So this mission isn't going very yeah, well. You could use these guns didn't really get destroyed by water. No. Nah. Yeah, Especially, simple. I mean, there's little lead balls. Probably fairly easy to find. Yeah. Uh, some of the supplies that the British captured, uh, they captured like three heavy cannons, and they try uh, lighting the um, the caissons that they're on. They light those on fire so they can't use the cannons. Well, the fire quickly spreads to the town hall. And an old lady is going to convince the British to form a bucket brigade to put out the fire. But this is because she knew that there was a lot of ammunition stored on the top floor. And if that building went up in flames, there's going to be a big boom. Once again, though, the British obliged. They form a bucket brigade and we're like, we're so sorry for this fire. We're going to put it out for you guys. Meanwhile, there's other soldiers that are just like going to pubs and stuff and like having breakfast and things because they've been up for like 20 plus hours and they're hungry. So it's just, it's just weird stuff going on. Uh, so meanwhile, Barrett and the militia are sitting on uh, Punkatasset Hill, which is that hill about a mile away, and they're seeing smoke coming out from the center of the city. Like, All right. They're burning it down. They're like, they're burning it down. Yes, they are burning this down. We need to do something. So Barrett will give the order to 400 militiamen to engage the English. In their way were lorries, 100 redcoats gourd. Uh, guarding that north bridge however he wasn't very smart and he put his troops on the wrong side of the bridge typically you'd want the river between you and your opponent the river's to his back and now he's outnumbered four to one and a mob of angry colonists are marching towards him so they are going to try to get on the other side of the river and as they're doing so they're trying to pull the bridge apart and this is just angering Barrett and his men even more. They start screaming, look, they are trying to destroy our town. They are trying to destroy our town. Laurie then makes another mistake. He puts his men in column rather than line form, which really limits his firing power. Um, and basically, now you have Laurie's men on one side of the river. You got Barrett's men on one side of the river. Laurie is going to ask for reinforcements. But the uh, British officer who he asked reinforcements to say, sorry, I can't send you reinforcements because the colonel that would be your reinforcements, he's too fat to get there in time. It's not worth it. He said something along the lines, like, it'll take you him like 45 minutes to go the mile he needs to go because oh, he's too fat. All right. He didn't have a horse? He didn't. I guess he didn't have a horse. I don't know. Honestly, good on him for walking 20 miles. Was that? Good on him for walking 20 yes. miles. Good for him. Um, and then, so both sides start firing each other, um, knowing that they were in a horrible situation, the British would retreat. Um, the, the colonists are really, really, um, shocked by the success of what had just happened. Um, so no one had actually believed either side would shoot to kill each other. Some advanced, many more retreated. Some just went home to see the safety of their homes and families. So now you just got the colonists are just kind of dispersing. They're like, ah, I guess we're done here. Time All to get lunch. Uh, Barrett eventually began to recover control. He moved some of the militia back to the hilltop 300 yards and then sent Major Buttrick with others across the bridge to a defense position on a hill behind a stone wall. Lieutenant Colonel Smith of the British heard the exchange of fire from his position in the town and went uh, to go see if Lori was okay. 
Um, and what he saw were basically just the British running back through Concord. Smith was concerned about the four companies that had been at Barrett's uh, that basically were now unprotected. Uh, when he saw the Minutemen in the distance behind their wall, he halted his two companies, moved forward with only his officers to take a closer look. One of the Minutemen behind the wall observed, if we had fired, I believe we, have, we would have killed almost every officer there uh, that was in the front, but we had no orders to fire and there wasn't a gun fired. And then you get this really weird story where you have the British and you have the militiamen standing off. They're staring at each other. And then the town drunk Elias Brown makes an appearance. He's a moonshiner. And he uh, wants yes. to know if there's anyone who wants to buy moonshine. So he <laughs> is just walking in between the lines trying to peddle moonshine on both the British and the English. Did anyone buy any? It's pretty good I have marketing. no idea. That'd be really funny, though. <clears throat> it's good marketing skills. <laughs> Who wants the moonshine? All right. At this point, the detachment of regulars sent to Barrett's farm marched back from their fruitless search in the area. They passed through the now mostly deserted battlefield and saw dead and wounded comrades laying on the bridge. This one gets really weird, too. So the guys that were at Barrett's farm, they literally, like, walk through the militia lines. And the militia are just like, huh, what are these guys doing? Who are they? And they just walk back to the British lines. It's just this... Concord and Lexington is just so it's like a, bizarre. It's like a fun, it's like a fun battle where people are dying. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's so weird. Um, so they crossed town uh, bridge and returned to town by eleven thirty a.m. under the watchful eye of the colonists who continued to maintain the defensive positions. The regulars continued to search for and destroy colonial military supplies in town, ate lunch, and then re uh, resembled for marching and left Concord at noon. Um, basically. They believed if the town was getting too unsafe, we had to go back to Boston where we'd have safety in numbers. As they did, though, it's going to be a horrible trip back. Word had spread all throughout Massachusetts. Minutemen had been appearing from all over the place, and now they're lining that route back to Boston, and they are just picking people off the whole way back. Do you know how many they lost in total? <clears throat> I want to say it was like 700. Oh. It was a, it was a relatively large number. If I'm yeah, not mistaken, I think it was like the second costliest action of the American Revolution for the British. I may be wrong on it, 700, but I know it was quite costly. Hmm. So by the time Franklin's ship made it back to Philadelphia on May 5th, the American Revolution had begun. And now Franklin, he's got other issues to worry about. All right. How are we going to fight this war and what are we going to try to do with England? Please join us next week as we learn about Franklin's role in the American Revolution. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.